Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We're getting to this point where... We've got a stalemate. We need to find solutions. All sides are putting huge amounts of money and effort and time into research and development. This is absolutely the way things happen in war. You know, this is why inventions happen so quickly. I always think of military tanks as very 20th century objects, somehow now relegated to airfix model making and top Trump status. But now, sadly, as I'm recording this, We're once again seeing the, albeit mainly, charred remains of Russian tanks on our TV news screens and social media feeds as the Russian army continues its war in Ukraine. We've imagined armoured fighting vehicles in literature long before they came to fruition in the First World War as a design solution to the very specific military situation then. But what did the first tank look like and how did they evolve over the decades? As well as a practical fighting machine, what about the psychological impact of tanks, that relentless Dalek-like movement that strikes fear into the heart of the enemy? How suitable are they for the conflicts of the 21st century? And why are they called tanks in the first place? Welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and today I am joined by historian, author and fellow History Hit presenter, James Holland to talk about the origins and the future of the tank. Welcome to the show, James. It's really lovely to have you. Thank you. We've only got half an hour. There's a lot to talk about. And I know there's a lot to talk about because I've been watching you on History Hit. Mm. There are like hundreds of videos about tanks. <laughs> <laughs> they should just rename. You, you need a whole network. Just, I don't know. Tank. tank exclamation mark. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we'll limit ourselves because this podcast is a podcast about the origins of things. Right. So we're going to go right back. Actually, it was funny. I was doing a little bit of research into this and I'm not a tank expert. Why is it like Leonardo da Vinci kind of invented everything? <laughs> you know how like he didn't invent the helicopter, but everyone says Leonardo. Yeah, he did and the, the tank no, and the submarine and, yeah, and the I spacecraft didn't re- and everything. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise he did tanks as well. And was a kind of dab hand at enigmatic smiles. Yeah, I'm guessing there's probably other people, but let's just clear it up. He didn't invent the tank. He didn't invent the tank, no. 
It looked a bit rubbish. He invented a sort of, you know, an armoured moving thing. Yeah. But it's made of wood. Yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna cut it, basically. Not really. And the other thing I didn't realise, the thing I liked when I was looking at this was H. G. Wells, the great H. G. Wells, yeah. wrote a short story called The Land Ironclads. Yeah. Which is basically a short story about the development of the tank. And this was written in nineteen oh three, I think, or nineteen oh four, so before the First World War, which is when we think about tanks. But he kind of got it pretty much spot on. I mean, I guess the ironclads named after ships, we think of ironclad ships, don't we? Well, I think that's the big change. You know, once you start having locomotives made out of iron, and then once you progress from that to ships, ocean-going ships made out of iron, Hmm. and suddenly iron is the kind of the number one thing, isn't it? You know, stone and brick is kind of a bit passe. And suddenly you kind of think, okay, we've got iron bridges, we've got iron locomotives, we've got iron ships. Now we've got the internal combustion engine, it's not a massive leap to having an armoured fighting vehicle, is it? That's really interesting. So actually, like so much invention and innovation, lots of things, or lots of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle have to come together at the same time. And then suddenly, lo and behold, we have... Yeah, I think so. And I think also, I think, you know, there's nothing like a war to kind of really focus people's minds when it comes to invention. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about, from H.G. Wells, early 1903, 1904, came up with this idea of sort of tanks... It was the First World War, really. We can really begin our story, isn't it? Yeah. They were known as land ships, you know, to start off with. Tank was a code. Well, yeah, this is interesting. Where does the word tank come from? Of course, we're so used to it now, we don't really think about it. But Yeah, it actually comes from Churchill. Well, tell me that story. How did that work? He is in the government at the time. He's a government minister. This is before he goes off to fight on the Western Front. So what year are we talking here? Sort of 1915. Mm -hmm. And someone else comes up with the idea of a tank. And he goes, well, I like, you know, Churchill's always a sucker for a kind of something modern and new and technologically advanced. And he says, that's a really good idea. You know, it's called a, called a land ship. And then it's will go, well, we can't call it a land ship because that's sort of too obvious. You know, we need to sort of disguise what we're doing. Let's just call it a tank. So that's where the name tank come from. As in a water tank, as in something that would contain water. Well, you've got a big sort of steel kind of block. Yeah. You know, what could this be? <laughs> <laughs> so they come up with the idea of a tank and that's sort of where it comes from. Uh, you know, and originally the idea is is it's a means of, yes, it is a means of offering fire support, but it's a means of getting across no man's land in a way that's not going to be destroyed by a machine gun. OK, so what was it about the First World War? So we're a year after the war started. What was it that necessitated this? Well, obviously, the First World War is being fought all over the place. But from the kind of British point of view, uh, and they're the inventors of the tank, you know, the French, the Germans and the, and the British have all kind of sort of got into this stalemate of the Western Front where you've got sort of, you know, 800 miles of trench warfare, adding to and adding to. And it's very clear by kind of the middle of 1915 that, that, that this is no longer a... You know, 1914 is a war of mobility. 1915 is a one of increasing staticness. I don't think that's quite a word, is it? But you know what I mean? Stationary. Nobody was moving. No one's really moving. And so you've got these trenches developing and... How do you get around that? Because the moment you put your head over the parapet, you get destroyed, you know, yes, by shells. But what's actually really killing people when they do big attacks is machine guns, Maxim guns or Lewis guns, depending on which way you're attacking. And how do you avoid that? And how do you get through wire? You know, these huge wire entanglements. I mean, that's why there's a stalemate. And the stalemate also is because people can't communicate with each other very well. Mm. So, you know, you might have a little bit of localised success, but you can't then exploit that success because you can't organise your troops quickly enough to kind of shove them into that gap. So you get to this absolute loggerhead where each side has got this sort of 
gorge in the ground, this sort of scar in the ground. In front of it is lots of wire, mm-hmm. which is really hard to get through, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then there's this sort of hellhole in the middle. And how do you get across that? Because it's broadly flat. Everyone can see you coming. All you got to do is sort of fire your machine gun and wait for them to get tangled up on the wire and then you mow them down. It sort of couldn't be easier. And there's no obvious way of getting around this. So the concept by the tank is this is your way of getting behind it because you can put men inside, you can trample over the wire, you can trample over the trench and you can have men following behind. Was there a person who we can attribute going from that realisation of okay, we're at a stalemate, we need to invent something. Is there a person we can... Yeah, I can't remember the name of the guy who's actually the single person who comes up with it. But it's more sort of, we're getting to this point where we've got a stalemate, we need to find solutions. Mm -hmm. So all sides are putting huge amounts of money and effort and time into research and development. This is absolutely the way things happen in war. You know, this is why inventions happen so quickly. And all the kind of normal processes which normally would hold people up, red tape, kind of boring sort of office work, bureaucracy, all this kind of stuff, supply, you know, well, you know, I could do that, but, you know, it's going to cost you to get that iron down here from Northumberland or whatever it might be. You know, all that's kind of sort of blown out of the water when it comes to war, because urgency means all those barriers suddenly get sort of... War is good for focusing the mind. Absolutely. So the tanks first go into action at the Battle of the Somme, actually. I mean, when we think of the Battle of the Somme, we always think of the 1st of July and the 60,000 casualties and 20,000 dead, etc., yeah. etc. Et but actually, the, the Somme goes on into November 1916. Well, given that it's a stalemate, so you mentioned Churchill, so presumably it's not just the British who are thinking about, right, we've got to invent something in order to cross no man's land and cross wire and unblock the U-bend, if you like. Presumably... Were the Germans coming up with a similar... Did they have the similar idea? Yeah, they are, but they're coming up with it after the British shot, if you see what I mean. It appears on the, on the battlefield, and then very quickly it's copied. So you can see why... Once you see it in action, it's not actually a terribly complicated thing. OK, oh, yeah, OK, I get that. It's got some tracks around it. Yeah, mm. the tracks are good because that means it can advance over boggy ground. You know, you're, you're spreading the weight. You're spreading the traction. It's got an engine in it. Yeah, okay, I get that. How hard can it be? Uh, And suddenly you're making them. Can you tell us a little bit about that evolution of things like the Caterpillar track? I mean, did we start off with kind of wheels first and then did the tracks develop? And then what about the sort of rotating turret and the gun? How did it all come together? Tracks had already sort of come into being before the First World War, the concept of a track. I think Scott is involved with that. You know, Scott of the Antarctic, he, he's one of the guys who says, well, hang on a minute. You know, what we need is something where you're kind of sort of spreading the weight and you're kind of, you know, you're getting traction mm. over a longer range of ground than a single, you know, because if you think about a wheel, you know, it's only a couple of inches, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. actually touching the ground at any one time. The whole point of a track is it's covering a, a longer piece of period. So it might be slipping at one bit, but it's gripping at another bit. And that's the whole the whole point behind it. So I think, it, you know, Scott is thinking about it, isn't he? And sort of motor traction is something that he's considering for his Antarctic exploration. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So can you tell us about what the first tank was, the sort of first tank that came into the First World War, and what its effect was? Yeah. So the first one, Little Willie, which is the first design, and actually you can still see this. This is a, the, the original one is at the Tank Museum down in Bovington. Mm-hmm. But the first tank is little William, and then they come up with the kind of you know the the Mark V tank, which is a sort of classic one that we're familiar with of the First World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are made by um, William Foster in Lincoln. I quite can't remember who exactly is the inventor, but it's Foster who make it in Lincoln in in Lincolnshire. Mm-hmm. And Foster are you know already well established for making traction engines, steam engines. Well, there's a, I suppose there's a logical progression from things like steam engines, tractors, agricultural 
machinery yeah. to, to something like a tank. To say this little willy, is that what it's called? Or big willy? Little, little willy is the first one, yeah. yeah and okay. it's sort of, actually, funny enough, it looks more like a tank than, a, than the Mark V does in a way, because it's got a little sort of turrety thing. From memory, in watching black and white footage, there's those slightly kind of rhomboid-shaped tanks of the First World War, where the kind of caterpillar track goes all the way around the top. Yeah, so that's the Mark V. Oh, that's the Mark V. Okay, like, I think yeah, yeah. In Indiana Jones, one of the Indiana Jones films. Doesn't he kind of get run over by one of those? Yes, I think I think the Indiana Jones one, yes, it is a, It is that First World War one, isn't it? It's in yeah. North Africa, and the evil villain Nazi falls over the cliff. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so we've got these new machines that can cross no man's land, yeah, and they can cross over wire, and they're fantastic. And presumably, they're evolving on both sides of the conflict. So presumably, the Germans are also developing them. Yeah. So are we kind of a developing a, a kind of an arms race already in terms of how thick does the armor need to be? How fast do they need to go? I mean, that first tank, for example, just what would that have been like to have sat in and ah oh, brutal and driven? How fast did it go? Um, you know, walking speed. I mean, you know, okay. really slow. And, and you know, if you ever go in one of these things, because, you know, they, they still exist, you can still see them. You know, the engine is in the middle. So that sort of rhomboid shape that you're looking at, that we're also sort of familiar with, the tracks going around the whole thing at either side. Mm. In the middle of it is kind of the operating compartment. And the engine is just sat in the middle of it. So you can imagine what it's like for the crew. I mean, you know, it's sort of carbon monoxide poisoning, poisoning by slow death. You know, if the, if the maxims don't get to you, then the fumes from your <laughs> your tank will. I mean, it's just absolutely brutal. What about the armour as well? Would the armour have worked? I mean... Yes, against that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely they would have done. What sort of thickness? Gosh, I'm not sure. But I mean, you know, it's not like armour plate's probably like half an inch or something like that. It's not that it's terribly thick. Yeah. It's just that it's thick enough to kind of resist shrapnel blast and machine gun bullets that's the key point yeah and to sort of crush anything that comes before it and the point is those rhomboid tracks they can get over shell holes and they can get over mud and well that's the theory i mean passchendaele for example in 1917 becomes a tank graveyard because it's so boggy that even they can't kind of get through that so they're effective to a point you know there is the famous battle of cambrai in in 1917 where they kind of the first sort of major tank action mm-hmm. you know tanks are becoming more and more numerous and actually they become very very important in 19 in the last 100 days where the kind of the fighting becomes mobile again as well they're moving forward and suddenly you've got this idea that the tanks are offering fire support i mean by the second world war their tanks are doing a multitude of different roles but in the first world war they're very much what we would call an infantry tank i.e. they're offering fire support and protection to advancing infantry I suppose when we think of tanks, we generally think of the Second World War, and they completely changed the theatre, how how battles on the ground were won. But in the First World War, I mean, paint a picture for us about how they did change things. You know, how did the tactics change? Well, they enable a level of mobility that has not been afforded up until that point. And don't forget, apart from the kind of the March offensive of 1918, the Germans, for the most part, particularly on the Western Front, mm. are largely static. The tanks are only a feature of the Western Front. You don't see them in action in Italy, for example. No. You don't see them on the Eastern Front, which ends obviously in 1917. No, no. But you do see them on the Western Front. And they are supposed to be kind of deadlock breakers. That's the point of them. And to a certain extent, that does happen. You start to see that in 1917, Battle of Arras, Battle of Cambrai, Battle of Passchendaele. Problem is, as I said earlier on at Passchendaele, you know, they're already kind of, you know, the mud is so bad, the Epe salient is so churned up by kind of three years of warfare that when the rain comes, even a tank with those kind of tracks can't cope with it. 
and they become bogged down in a mess. And, you know, mechanical failure is one of the big problems. Yeah. As you would expect for something which has been hustled into action before it's quite ready, before it's been quite worked out. I mean, you can see when you're thinking about it, you can think about the Mark V tank, you can think about the idea of it, can't you? So we'll put an engine in the middle, we'll have this sort of iron kind of hull, it'll be surrounded by tracks, we'll chuck a couple of guns on either side and, and off we go. And it's great on paper, but the practicalities of kind of operating, you know, when you've got stuff flying around, you've got sort of, you know, completely bomb damaged landscape, you know, where the internal combustion engine is still in its infancy when kind of, you know, mechanical vehicles are still in their infancy. The opportunity for mechanical failure is obviously pretty high. Did they break down all the time? Yeah, they did. And, you know, once that happens you're sort of a bit stuck because you can't move and, and, you know, you're a bit of a kind of sort of ammunition magnet. And for the crew, obviously, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. But notwithstanding that, enough get through to make a difference. And what you see throughout 1917 is, oh, yeah, okay, this is the way forward. So much so that the Germans do start trying to create their own tank. I mean, they only have one, and I think that only comes into action in 1918 for the First World War. You know, the French are doing the same. They have the Renault FT tanks, which come into action. So you can see everyone's thinking, okay, this is the way forward. Yeah. But it has been hurried, you know. So I think, I think, what is the impact of the tank? It's in terms of psychologically, I think it's, I think it's huge. In terms of how does it develop weapons technology? It's absolutely massive. There's no turning back between then and arguably now, but that's another conversation. But in terms of how much do they actually affect the battle? growingly so by 1918 you know tanks are much more effective in the traditional fighting season of the summer yeah (laughs) that is the bottom line and there are other things there are other factors which are enabling that war of mobility Hmm. to happen in 1918 which is not down to the tank it's down to greater improved british artillery it's because of the overwhelming numbers the joining of the americans it's because what the British do in spring 1918 German offences is they actually seed the land, let the Germans come on, and then once they've overextended, then counterattack. So suddenly it becomes a sort of warmer. So there's a whole host of reasons why in 1918, suddenly in those last that last phase of the war, it becomes incredibly mobile again. So actually, you've only got three years of trench warfare, really. Mm-hmm. But the tank plays an important part. Its contribution is important enough to ensure that there is now no turning back. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, what about something like the Treaty of Versailles and Germany and, and sort of rearmament? Yeah, well, they're not allowed to create tanks. Well, they're not allowed tanks. I'm just sort of thinking of the evolution from the First World War to the Second World War. And obviously the tanks played a much bigger part in the Second World War. When, when, certainly when I think of tanks, I tend to think of Second World War tanks. I think we all do, really. <laughs> so tell us, how did the tank evolve into this sort of next big conflict? I mean, to start off in the 1920s, of course, the First World War was a war to end all wars, so kind of people weren't really thinking about it too much. Yeah. So the British were, you know, we started sort of thinking, well, that whole kind of, sort of rhomboid look, you know, maybe it needs a turret, you know, maybe it needs a bit more firepower. That is happening. But actually, for a bit, they're getting a little bit smaller. Then people are sort of thinking, OK, but how do we kind of improve reliability? Actually, the problem with the rhomboid one is it doesn't really have any suspension. So actually, what you really need is separate wheels and tracks rather than just tracks. Mm. You know, how do you do that? So designs are starting to evolve and change. But it's not, a, you know, in terms of the German point of view, in a weird sort of way, you know, the fact that they're not allowed to have much of an army in the 1920s gives them an opportunity to observe what other people are doing and then kind of, you know, get the best bits in one way. Yeah. Um, it's a sort of, it's funny enough, it's a sort of second same with the Russians. The Russians go off and sort of go, okay, well, we never had tanks. You know, what we're going to do now is all Soviets rather, you know, let's go on a fact-finding mission. You know, there's an inventor in the US called Christie. Christie had developed his own particular type of suspension. The Soviets go, mm, that's a good system. So we'll kind of take that. So you're kind of sort of taking from Peter and pinching with Paul and you're kind of putting it together. So by the start of 1939, Tanks have taken this kind of three very, very distinct routes. You have light tanks, mm -hmm. which are lightly armoured, can sort of beetle around, have rotating turrets and machine guns and kind of like, you know, pop guns, you know, anti-tank guns in the turret. Or you have absolute beasts like the French do, which is the Char B, which weirdly looks exactly like the British Mark V tank, but has a turret on top, mm -hmm. and Samoas and things like that. You know, the Germans are just beginning to develop the Mark IV, and so the Mark IV is coming into action at that time, which is a sort of what we would call a medium tank, that sort of, you know, 28 tonnes, 30 tonnes, something like that, with a 75 millimetre gun on it. And so there's these different types of roles, and the British have got completely hung up, you know, there's sort of fast tanks, reconnaissance tanks, and then there's infantry tanks, and infantry tanks are, you know, the Matilda or whatever, you know, they're slow and, and cumbersome, but they're supposed to keep kind of, you know, pace with the walking infantry. But you also have fast reconnaissance tanks, which are kind of sort of ones that can sort of beetle around and do combination of reconnaissance and shooting stuff up. And as the war progresses, it becomes clear that actually what you want is you want better armour, you want better firepower, but you still want manoeuvrability. You know, different countries go down different routes with this. Mm. Uh, given that this sort of evolution is happening and given that all tanks, they kind of roughly look the same. First of all, was there lots of industrial espionage or did everyone just sort of independently find the same solution? And also, was there a kind of Thomas Edison of tank design? Like you mentioned Christie and the suspension. Mm. No, there isn't. I mean, all the major armament manufacturers are all kind of sort of busily doing stuff, whether it be, mm. you know, clandestinely and then quite openly in Germany, whether it be, you know, Vickers in this country, for example. The people who aren't really doing anything are the Americans, interestingly. You know, they do have tanks, but they're very, very small, puny tanks. It's not until the start of the Second World War that they start building something substantial. 
So they're very much a European thing for the obvious reasons that we've talked about. Well, sort of globally, everyone's kind of conscious of tanks and stuff, but there's not a sort of, you know, people are, if you sort of see a, a sort of graph of sort of blocks of different countries, it's sort of rising in different rates and different sizes and different ways. There's not much industrial espionage. There's, there's certainly the sort of open fact-finding missions going on between nations. As I said, you know, Soviet Union going over to the United States and stuff. And first major Soviet tank, I think, is it, is it the T-26, I think it is, is a combination of British design and American design hmm. with their own kind of slant on it. So it's evolving at different rates, at different paces, but the tank is here and people are thinking about it and people are thinking about modern warfare. And of course, increasingly so as the 30s are playing out and it's clear that another war is on its way. I mean, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I always think of the tank as very much situated in the 20th century. It's this sort of 20th century bit of literal hardware. And here we are in the 21st century, and we're seeing tanks again. It's a very odd thing to see. Yeah, both the Russians and Ukrainians have got a lot of tanks. Also, the Russians seem to be losing a, a huge number of tanks. And as inventions move forward, your countermeasure is always moving forward as well. Mm -hmm. So you have a U-boat, but then you have anti-U-boat measures. You know, you have a tank, and then you have anti-tank measures. So, you know, the development of the anti-tank gun, you know, which is before you had field artillery, you know, which would lob a shell, sort of howitzers and what have you. Um, suddenly you've got something which is direct fire, which is all about the velocity. It's about the range and velocity. And, you know, both Germany, France and Britain start the Second World War with equivalent to a two-pounder, sort of 40-millimeter, 37-millimeter gun, high velocity, which, you know, very quickly looks a bit puny. Mm. You know, by the end of the war, you've got sort of 17-pounder, 88-millimeter, all this kind of stuff, or middle part of the war, rather, I should say, which can fire unbelievable rates of fire. You know, by August 1944, the British have ventured the discarding sabot, which means that the velocity of the 17-pounder goes from 3,200 feet per second to over 4,000 feet per second. I mean, that is really travelling some. You know, that's sort of eclipsing anything the Germans have got. So what you're seeing in Ukraine and Russia at the moment is advanced tanks, T-90s, for example, but you're also seeing more advanced anti-tank systems, such as the Javelins, which are, you know, destroying T-90s, no problem whatsoever. Well, that's where we should sort of end up talking is what is the future of tanks? Like you say, the arms race develops between tank and anti-tank. We're seeing a lot of these anti-tank weapons, which seem to be coming from the UK, seem to be providing the Ukrainians with these anti-tank weapons. We seem to be seeing on the news burnt out tanks everywhere. Did tanks have a future? I'm not entirely sure that they do, actually. I mean, I remember the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, sort of 91, I remember there were lots of tanks, and tanks seemed to play a very, very important part in that particular conflict. But certainly the sort of Russian-Ukrainian thing, I don't know. They seem to be getting bogged down. They don't seem to be working. I mean, there's obviously lots of other reasons why... Well, tanks have never been particularly good in urban warfare. No, well, this is it, yeah. Because you're canalised, you know, down a road, for example. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and you can't see very much. And even with amazing optics, it's still quite hard to see from inside. It's not as good as having that kind of total sensory awareness that you would have by having your head out of the turret. But obviously, that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So no one has their head out of the turret anymore. If you were going to design a tank now, fit for the 21st century, what would it look like? I don't know, because, you know, you're, you're developing into an age of drones and... Uh, well, exactly, and cyber warfare and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, things are, things are very different. I mean, you know, going into a town just seems an absolute no-no, but then it was in the Second World War too. Mm. I mean, you know, <laughs> Stalingrad, anyone? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's an interesting one. And by the end of the Second World War, of course, you know, the Allies are being plagued by Germans sort of jumping out from behind of buying hedgerows and trees and things with Panzerfaust. The problem with the Panzerfaust is you need to be 
basically at point blank range for it to work. Mm. And then your chance of surviving once you've done it is obviously incredibly small. The difference of a javelin is that you can fire it at much safer ranges and it's still incredibly effective. Yeah. So if you can't countermeasure that, it makes your tanks redundant, doesn't it? It does. There's one thing that you said that I think is really interesting, and that's the psychological effect of the tank. Mm. And there is just something, and perhaps it's the fascination that you have with tanks and that people have with tanks. It's just looking at them. They look so extraordinary. And what is it about tanks for you? Like, why did you become so interested in tanks specifically? I mean, I know, you, you know you're a military historian, but tanks. Well, because I'm a Second World War historian and armoured fighting is just such a sort of central part of the Second World War and uh, in ground tactics and ground operations. I think it's really interesting. I was talking to someone yesterday and he said, you know, you've got to remember about tanks. Tanks is not about top trumps, you know, having different categories and giving them marks out of 10. I'm just not sure I entirely agree with that, because if you were having top trunks of tanks, you'd do size of gun, size of armour, production numbers, mechanical reliability. These are all the things that you would mark out of 10. But one of them would have to be fear factor, right? Absolutely. It's that relentless moving. It's that relentless... Well, yeah. I mean, take the Tiger tank, for example. It's probably the most, still the most famous tank ever. I, I remember making one, yes. Tamiya kit. Right, of course. Only 1,347 made. Mm-hmm. You know, 492 King Tigers. So it's a really, really small number. And yet they're disproportionately famous or infamous and have a disproportionately high psychological effect on how we view the Second World War. And yet, think about the Tiger tank. You know, it's incredibly complex. It's far too complex. They're always breaking down. Um, They're not particularly manoeuvrable. The turret's too slow. But you wouldn't want to come up against one because they look really scary (laughs) because they're they're massive and they've got huge armour and a monster gun. And and you just think, whoa, you know, the last thing I want to do is come up against a Tiger tank. But that fear factor, that psychological factor is absolutely enormous. So I think that is a key part. And also the sort of naming of them as well, like the naming of weapons, I always find really good. It's that, it's that yeah, cycle. It's funny, the panther, the tiger. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think we're going to have to leave it. We could chat all day about this. It's really interesting. I'm going to go away and I think I had a Top Trumps tank. Did you? I never did. I was really into model. I did. I used to do models. I used to do Tamiya models. Did you? You liked Yeah, models? I was into that and I did lots of tanks. <laughs> I really badly. I was really bad. I always got glue everywhere and I was never very good at it. So um, I haven't done a model in 40... 40- 35 years, let's you're, say. You're so young, um, James. I find it hard to believe. And uh, <laughs> then I had to do one for a sort of little sort of, you know, a little competition last year. And I did get a little bit carried away, mm. I have to say. James, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to chat. And where can people find you? On History Hit. There's lots of you exploring tanks. Yeah, I've got stuff on History Hit. I've got a few things on History Hit. Yeah, they can see me there or, you know. Great. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and what have you. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks very much for joining me today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have, make sure that you subscribe to the show as I'm going to be back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. And don't forget, if you've got an invention you'd like me to investigate or if you've got a favourite invention story you'd like me to tell, get in touch with me on Twitter or wherever and we will put it on our list. See you next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours 
of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.